When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me once again, I don't know if we even promised it last time, but the man behind a total of two podcasts on SBS and a whole bunch of movie stuff. Uh, and TV stuff for Always Be Watching. It is Mr. Dan Barrett, the host of Batman Land and the Good Fight Club podcast. Welcome, sir. Welcome back. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good morning. Wherever wherever you're listening. It's always morning somewhere. <laughs> uh, welcome back to One Hit Minute. It is a pleasure to be back. I wasn't sure I'd be welcome back. Uh, last time I did spend maybe a little bit too long talking about Monica Potter. And we did... We did have a dalliance or two into Desperado and Lethal Weapon that we could probably take back, but I think it was all fun. No regrets. <laughs> no regrets. I do about the Lethal Weapon TV show. Revealing that to people was probably... was a dark time for me. Yeah. I was young and I didn't need the money. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know what it was. Um, but we're back. Last time, we got to focus on the Neil McCauley crew. and We got to peel back the layers of performance. And yeah, the- yeah, so it's the scene that I... Like my hypothesis about the movie is that it's all about performance, okay? And that was the scene that unveiled it. Yes. And I want to talk to you about this minute coming up in the film because this film is another film that really leans really heavily into the idea of performance. Yes. The two types of interesting performances that happen all in the space of the one minute from the one character. <laughs> yes. It is the 82nd minute of Heat, um, which if you're looking on your clocks right now, and again, this is not the definitive edition of Heat, which is very readily available at the moment. This is the original theatrical cut, but it's okay. They're probably only a couple of seconds out of sync. But you're looking at the moment where Vincent and his crew, um, so, you know, where Studi, the awesome um, Ted Levine, McKelty Williamson, um, are all hanging about um, at is, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a, a shipyard. And they're having a look at oil refineries. They're having a look at um, junkyards. They're having a look here, and they're being set up. And they're thinking uh, they're they're there to see what Macaulay's crew is casing out as a potential next as a next spot because they've had already one foiled attempt to capture them after a cop sat down too hard in a car with a machine gun <laughs> on his back. Um, but we're sort of getting there at this moment, going, "What the heck are these guys doing?" Now, last time I was on the podcast, I think we got to like minute 37 before we actually played the minute. And I told myself in the car ride over here for this minute that we would do the minute straight up. So can we go into the minutes to begin with? Absolutely. Let's, guys, you guys are going to listen along with Dan and I, and then we're going to watch it and we're going to come back and talk about it. This crew is good. You know what they're looking at? What? Us. 
the LAPD, the police department. We just got made. Yeah! Okay. Ha! Okay, motherfucker! This crew is good. <laughs> Start, this is the minute it starts. It starts with those words. This crew is good. Yeah, and to me, like this is just like a perfect Pacino minute. In perfect fact, Pacino minute. Perfect Pacino minute, which is the name of my <laughs> spin-off podcast that I'll be running. <laughs> but what I really dig about this scene is that you've got these two performances coming from him. So at the very beginning, feeding off the minute that came prior, you've got him hanging around with the cops as he's trying to sort of work out what it is that's happened. Now, all of them are kind of posturing a little bit throughout that scene, and it's right as this minute starts that his brain's kind of just clicked in and he's realised exactly what's happening. It's even... So it, it, go- it's oh, even all, sorry, just to feed in is, and, and, and guys, we would have talked about it in the previous minute, but there's this frantic camera move. So for the whole time, I think what's exceptionally clever is as you sort of in, embody the, uh, the different perspectives as people are sort of scanning around this place, it's very casual. They're scanning slowly. They're trying to take it all in, trying to possibly wonder what's happening. And you get all of his guys, they're all taking looks. You catch all, you know, Ted Levine, Cotty Williamson, Wes Judy. You catch all those guys taking glances at things, you know, and, and, and Vincent too. And just in the, like, milliseconds before we get to this m- moment, suddenly Vincent... <laughs> He, he flicks his head around, he whips it so quickly, and Spinotti's camera, like the, the cut, um, goes to this frantic manoeuvre around. I'm looking around frantically, and he goes, this crew is good. <laughs> bang, that's where we start the minute. And this is it. So in the scene prior, like all of them are standing around, and you get the feeling that for each of those characters, it could be like their movie. Like they all feel like they're the star of their movie. Yes. But then as this minute kicks in, <laughs> like there is no doubt whatsoever that this is Pacino's movie. Yes. Okay. So he's there and he's kind of, everyone's standing around and because they're the stars of their own movie, they've all kind of got their own thing happening. And so each of them are trying to, I guess, sort of find some ground in the scene amongst them all. Okay. But at the point where this minute starts, Pacino has figured out what's going on and he realizes that they're possibly being watched. And so as his brain is just kind of clarifying that entirely, he starts performing to all the other cops around him, okay? And he starts trying to draw all of their attention so there's there's no doubt whatsoever, this is my performance, you're all paying attention to me. (laughs) So you can see as he starts changing his dialogue a little bit and it starts talking about like the police and he's drawing everything out. LAPD. Exactly, and it stops being him just standing around trying to figure things out and being sort of within the moment to him trying to own the moment and then suddenly performing and big-timing himself, he starts sort of peacocking around the other cops, okay, because he's the one that's figured it out and he knows what's going on. But then, like, the performance changes again where he realises he doesn't need to perform to the cops around him anymore. Rather, he needs to perform to De Niro, who's watching him. And so suddenly the performance switches just like the other time. And he's big-timing himself where he starts waving his arms around in the air. He's flipping them off because he's the big man down there. Okay, and just trying to sort of establish that he's not to be trifled with, that he is completely in control of the situation. 
So he does that same thing to the cops previously, saying, I'm in control of the situation here. He realizes he's still a small fryer because he's on the ground while he's being watched from probably above somewhere. And so suddenly it's the and massive peacocking. He, he, he doesn't know. And yeah, he takes that performance to like the maximum Pacino and like he is all over the place <laughs> and just shouting out. And, and, and it's great because what happens, it's, uh, it's, it's at 19 seconds into this minute, there's this millisecond of a sound cue. I think what's amazing is just before Neil enters uh, Ashley Judd's room um, to confront her about her affair yeah. in, in one of the previous minutes, there's this swelling score just before she opens the door. Like, Elliot Goldenthal just sort of swells it, and it's like this, I don't know, it's like almost sort of wraith-like, like, ah, like does this like weird <laughs> thing. And the score does that in this second as well. It goes, ah, it's almost like, it's like a vulture, it's a bird of prey, because we do then take the bird's eye view, and up in this perch is Neil McCauley with a telephoto lens looking down. Vincent's got his little chorus of guys, he has a beautiful framing here from Spinotti. Um, you know, the shadows are cast from the guys looking down, and then Vincent is differentiating himself from his little chorus, and bang, here's Neil taking these shots, and the score is just swelling with Neil up there, just sort of satisfi- satisfying himself. And, and Vincent is sort of... I think Vincent here is convinced, like, for, for a brief second. And, and what's cool, you get to see him sort of chew on it at the beginning of this minute going, you know what they're looking at? If this was me, it's almost like if this was me, I would do this too. I would fake out if I just thought that the heat was on me. I'd fake out and I'd try and catch him. You know what they're looking at? You know, these guys, these guys are good. These guys... And he builds himself... I love how exactly like he said. It's almost like first he has to perform to them. Yeah. He has to perform to himself to convince himself. He has to perform to them to convince them. And now he's like, I know you're there. I'm going <laughs> to scream about it. And he does such a great job. So, like, 19 seconds in, if you, if, you know, I freeze frames, but you hit play, the camera does this lovely pan sort of to the side, right directly behind. It's almost like a third-person video game point of view of him taking the snaps. Now, I also love the fact that he's behind a camera when this is happening. Yes. Because just from a cinema point of view... This is, I'm pretty sure, the first time that both these actors have been in the same scene together. Both in the same location together, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, he's... In the same time. Yeah, and De Niro is watching Pacino doing it, but it's through the lens of a camera, so there's still that sort of distance between the two of them. He is. He's still got that distance, and what's great is, and this is about the admiration piece of both the performance and 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 the formidable foe, Vincent's, like, nodding his head, okay, 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 having a chuckle. He's still looking in. He's still spinning around. Okay, motherfucker. And then, bang, there's this beautiful moment, 50 seconds into this 80-second minute, where finally Neil takes his face, because his face is right up in this telephoto lens, and you don't really see any expression. And then he comes up, and it's just it's quite, it's quite happy. It's quite, it's quite satisfied. Now, one of my favorite things from this time period is there was this great TV show called Homicide Life on the Street. Yes. Okay, now you've got a character in Detective Munch, played by stand-up comedian Richard Belzer. And I honestly think, and I'd never really cottoned onto it until I was watching Heat the other week to prepare for this. (laughs) Okay, but I honestly think that Belzer's taken a lot of his performance cues in it from the Pacino performance, where it's not quite as over-the-top, but there's certainly a sense of peacocking that he does, which is very similar because both of them, and this is like a Belzo bit of shtick, he's always wearing glasses. Okay, but the two of them just kind of like hold themselves exactly the same way when uh, engaging themselves in a police investigation. It's not uncommon, right? Because there's a weird, and this is what Pacino based him. So the Vincent Hanna character, um, mm. 
So Neil McCauley is a real dude. And, uh, and, and although during the research, Robert De Niro, you know, went and spoke to different career criminals and things like that. As a real man that was... As you did when you were preparing for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I went to... Uh, where did I go to? Joliet or wherever, <laughs> wherever it is, at Folsom um, in the hole. Um, but what's cool about Vincent Hanna, he's a bit of an amalgam of a few different cops um, and, and in particular, like an FBI profiler guy um, that, that, that Hanna studied, a real-life guy. And one of, the, one of his major character traits as an investigator was that he used to act really manic to sort of put criminals or anyone he was interviewing off because they'd, they'd always think he was a bit mad and so yeah. when he was with his when he was with his people he's very sort of low-key sort of chill but as soon as he got into the mode of being in front of other crooks or potential suspects he just kind of took them took them completely off by acting like a nutcase and so this is actually one of the rare moments as vincent where you see him go from how he reacts and how he interacts with his people um in the same sequence of time to then going, I can't just be my cool and calculating self. I'm now being watched by a criminal and therefore I have to act like the Vincent Hanna that is my reputation. Mm. And so it's that great moment where like, you know, here, this is, he actually gets to perform the Vincent Hanna performance to Neil so far away. But then when he gets it up close and personal with him, after that, it's, it's, it's the very candid and, and very real portrayal of Vincent as opposed to, this massive piece of performance that you know, poor um, Albert. What's wrong with you, poor Albert? Um, uh, uh, Albert Torina and his brother, um, my brother Richard, gonna talk to you. Um, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, they they cop the full brunt of it. You see, Hank Azaria's Alan Marciano cop the full brunt of it. Um, but you know, right now Neil doesn't get that. Yeah. Now I was reading somewhere, and I don't know if you've discussed this already on the pod. But there's, a th- I don't know if it's true or not, but apparently when Pacino was preparing for the role, he decided he was going to play the entire thing as though he's on cocaine. So I don't believe that there's a scene where he's taking cocaine in the film, but he plays the entire thing as though like he's... No, the script, the script was written that he would take bumps of cocaine. Okay. Yeah, it was I- actually revealed at the 20th anniversary, Chris Nolan, who may... Now, he'd be a guest... That's another one. Have it, Chris Nolan, if you're listening, and I know you subscribe, but welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Dan says hi as well. Batman Land fan. If we can get Chris Nolan on Batman Land, <laughs> that would be a feather on the cap. <laughs> Chris Nolan on One Heat Minute first, though, then Batman Land, because you've, you know, you've already you know, said it in three movies. But uh, so um, Chris Nolan facilitated the 20th anniversary Q&A with Michael Mann and key principal cast. A stack of people that did two screenings. Um, and Q&As uh, in LA. Um, uh, I've spoken to Joe Lynch, who is an amazing, um, uh, huge friend of the podcast and friend for, um, and, and supporter of it. Um, so thank you, Joe, if you're listening. But uh, Joe was actually there and he said it was absolutely incredible and amazing watching these guys perform, to, uh, you know, watching these guys talk about it. And it was in that moment that Pacino revealed that in the script, Vincent Hanna did cocaine. And they made a decision. And it wasn't a decision from the studio, but man made a decision that he felt like it jeopardized the character, like jeopardized the the role of the character. And they, I don't think they did it a lot of times, but there's one notable time that mm. we've already gone past in the film so far where he goes in and meets, um, where he meets Albert and his brother Richard at the nightclub. And when he goes up to the security guard and he goes, give me all your money. Like, and that guy turns around and goes, man, you're going to get smoke fooling. It's not by you. 
in that moment, they actually cut. And I confirmed with the editor, who's actually been part of the show, Pascal Buber, that they cut out Vincent copping cocaine and taking it in that moment. Okay. Because the thing is, when you watch this minute, okay, and you see just the maticness of him with his performance sort of broadly, like, you kind of get the feeling that, you know, he's got a bit of a buzz. I... I buy Vincent as a guy that's just got manic energy. So for me, like that bipolar energy, it doesn't surprise me. Like especially for a guy who has to run as hot as he runs, you know, I I believe that there could be someone without taking a bump of cocaine like that. So for me, I don't know. I'm a bit funny on it. I don't know if I like I want to believe because I want to I want to trust what I see on the screen and how he's presented. And I think I think you know, and I'd be interested to ask you because a lot of people do the Pacino versus De Niro as far as style and go, oh, well, you know, De Niro is so much better than Pacino in this movie or I think Pacino's hamming it up in this movie or blah, blah, blah. He's usually the one who get, cops it. But I think he's fantastic in this movie. And I love him very much because he does go manic, but it's for when he chooses to go manic and when he controls and is, is super, super in the moment and super authentic. Yeah, no, I mean, I think when you got Pacino up against De Niro, because Pacino is so broad and delivers such a strong screen presence, I really have trouble trying to even see like De Niro up against him. Like it's Pacino's film. That's a really interesting take. Like, You're I, one I of just, the first, Dan. Like I don't know, like De Niro, I like, but he always like he's just so low key so often. Yeah. That, I don't know, like as soon as Pacino's on there, and it's just the broadness of performance. It's like, if you put them against each other, and if I knew anything about actual acting, I'd be able to say that, no, no, this is actually a much more... A guy who's show. employed to write about acting and Well, I mean, because I'm not a trained actor. Like, essentially, no. I can watch something and say, I think that's a good performance. But, I mean, I don't really know the nuance. I've never... Yeah, it's a, it's a craft, right? I, I've never studied Meisner. No. No. And both of... Did both of these guys do it? Was uh, it Meisner? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, no. That, I mean... Oh, no. Hold on. Can we Google The Godfather Part 2? Can I Can I ask you as my guest to, okay. for, to briefly Google Let's The Godfather? Let's do it, but I do have an old phone that takes mo- like far longer <laughs> than you'd minutes. expect. But no, but, uh... you know, these guys, um, these guys are both method guys. I think that's what's so fantastic about them both being in the role. But what's so cool is that both their method to make their performances authentic are kind of underdone by the legacy of who they are. So, like, although these guys are both really authentically portraying Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley, they're still both Pacino and De Niro. Like, you're still here watching Taxi Driver, Raging Bull versus Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and Michael Corleone. I've never seen Serpico, and that just pains me. But Dog Day Afternoon is, like, top five for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, but even, even you, you only have to look at Pacino in you know, the Sea of Love or anything like that. He's, he's amazing. He's an amazing, amazing character actor. And they performed in that. It's their legacy that sort of powers this, even though they're sort of trying to hide under the method. I think it's perfect. Look, my phone just melts it down, but I did find the Leonard Molson guide sitting there on the Google books. <laughs> I've got to okay. get lost here for hours. Um, but yeah, so no, both of these guys are method actors, um, but they, do, they take them in different, you know, areas. I think, you know... Uh, Pacino definitely leaned, especially later in his career, leans more to the theatrical. And it's not that he doesn't do it in his early performances, but some of his early performances he's not required to. He's doing these really 
controlled bursts, you know, and like you only have to look at Godfather Part Two for me, which is you know, Dog Day Afternoon. He's screaming a chunk of the time <laughs> inside <laughs> of things, inside of things. Attica, um, but uh, <laughs> you know, he, he's he's going crazy. But you look at like Godfather, and it's you know a couple of interactions with his, you know, with uh, Frank Pentangeli and then his wife Kay, you know, where he has an outburst, but for the rest of the movie, he's just this simmering freaking pot of lava um, yeah I think they both have got the goods when it comes to you know those simmering or loud performances it just seems that Pacino leans towards the loud and De Niro leans towards that simmering I'm just trying to think of a good performance that either of them put in afterwards so like there's no real good films that either of them have made I mean I've got a real soft spot for 15 minutes but that's not a film no. I'd ever recommend to anyone no um, I, I really liked um I don't know. I think De Niro's had moments that I enjoyed him. I quite liked his cameo sort of thing in American Hustle. He was quite fun in Silver Linings Playbook. Um, Pacino. Yeah, it's tough, man. It's tough. I mean, look, other than the... uh, No, after... Sorry. Two massive films that Pacino did after this. One is The Insider. Oh, that's a good point. Which The Insider in 97 is is one of his all-time performances. And again, Michael Mann, criminally underrated movie. Um, and I think, and what I think Christopher Nolan did with Insomnia is essentially make a Christopher Nolan sequel to Heat, um, which is to take Vincent Hanna and turn him into a broken, desperate, um, also sort of just, you know, self-deceitful person. Um, and if he could have named the character Vincent Hanna, he would have loved it, but it's uh, uh, he didn't get a chance to. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely think those two are massive Pacino performances after this, but there's not there's not that many. What do you think it is about Heat that informs Nolan so heavily? Um, I think that Nolan really... Nolan is a professional obsessive, and I think if you're a professional obsessive, you'll automatically kind of come to love that and glean for that. And also, Nolan loves um, the... uh, He loves sort of industrial landscapes, if you like, and I think that's what man does he turns LA which is this vibrant organic thing but he also has this really hyper industrial um, um, uh, sort of perspective and and Nolan is the kind of guy in a lot of his stuff that he he can work with very little dialogue and a lot of imagery and people conveying stuff you only have to look at you know the way that he begins the dark night with you know a lot of dialogue less stuff and even look particularly um like Bane's you know um uh, with uh, Tom Hardy's performances Bane you know he's he's almost got like a a visual sensibility well before he thinks about dialogue and and tries to trim back as much as he doesn't have to say so i think that's probably where they share their greatest thing and also Nolan takes a lot of influence from Michael Mann just as far as you know Low, when you've got a cast and people have admired it in Inception they've admired it in The Dark Knight they've admired it in um, Interstellar is Nolan loads up his cast like m- like man at this time you know you go from Last of the Mohicans you go to Insider Heat um, you know even Manhunter he just completely stacks his cast and especially supporting characters with you know people who could essentially be leads and I think it's also yeah it's about that chemistry he sort of gets the landscapes he has that weird sort of existential crisis but for Nolan he leans out of professionalism and talks about people who deceive themselves that's his big thing for me um, but yeah, I think I think it's a whole mixture. It's like the it's it's like I don't know. It's like the difference between enchilada and quesadillas. It's like it's the same sort of ingredients, but they're just prepared in a slightly different way. I don't know about it. I always find that it's not. 
I want to use the phrase cold and clinical, but it's not really quite that. There's a distance, I think, between what's happening on the screen to any sort of real connection to regular humanity. Yes. And yeah. that's what these... I think that's where man's slightly more anchored, is that he's got people who are aware of what this concept and premise of humanity is. Mm. Um, and, and that's what they're wrestling with. They're wrestling with um, attachment and, 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 and feeling something. And, and, and it's almost unnatural for them to be normal. Um, whereas Nolan sometimes does, he doesn't feel any. He doesn't feel as unnatural as Man. Man really plays on that, that wrestle, that unnatural feeling that you're not, you're not living your life. Um, whereas Nolan has some distance. Now, what's absolutely killing me is that I was trying to think of good De Niro performances after Heat, and I've missed a couple of like grand ones. So I'll like say I'll concede and say Copland. I think he's really Copland quite solid. is very good. A really underrated James Bangold film that I think very, people should check out. Yeah, it's an, an excellent film, but um, just just to be well clear, as I sit here on the One Heat Minute podcast wearing a Heat t-shirt, um, <laughs> I have heard people start uh, online, um, including a guest that I'm dying to get on the show, Priscilla Page, um, a, a tremendous writer um, in her own right. Has Some people have talked about Copland being better than Heat, and we can just yeah. all, you can just, everyone can just pack up your bags and go home because kids... It's a great film. It's not the, even the best Mangold film. It's a great film, um, but it is no heat. It, it's solid, but there's nothing... I don't know. Outside of the Stallone performance in it, there's nothing to me that really says that this is like an all-time classic film. Yeah. It's, in it's a way cool. that I think Heat definitely does. Yeah, Heat's an all-time. all-time. Yeah. Uh, a film that I think is an all-time classic, though, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown's great. Yes. He was excellent. Yeah, same year as Copeland. Jackie Brown's probably in my top five, ten films. Oh, great film. Yeah, right across it. Uh, but then also a film which I don't know if it's a great film or if it's just a good-looking film. Ronan. The oh, Ronan's good. Film. Yeah, no, yeah. that's a good film. That's probably one of his last very, very solid films. Yeah, I think like, that's coming up to its uh, is that twentieth anniversary this year. Uh yeah, it would be. It was yeah. like ninety-eight. Ninety-eight, yeah, twentieth yeah, anniversary. Yeah, it's a great film. It has a uh, Sian Bian in it. Uh, Sian Bian, uh, Sian Bian, <laughs> and uh, it also has uh, Stellan Skarsgård and uh, the chick from the Truman Show, who I never remember her name uh, in California. Natasha Mikhail Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tr- Truman Show and Californication Lady um, is in it as well. No, that's a really good movie. Great mm. car chases. Oh, some really good car chases yeah. in Ronan. But yeah, no, that's a that's another one that's a, a very solid espionage sort of throwback. And then, do you dig any De Niro comedy? Do you get it? Do you get a Oh, look, I mean, obviously he's amazing in The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> but beyond that, I don't know. I, I struggle with the rest. <laughs> I love this minute. I'm glad we got to talk about it. Um, well, because it's such a sharp minute. It's very sharp. And they're both so great. And I think what's so... The, 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 the deep satisfaction with Neil here, they, they sort of linger on it for a little bit. And Vincent walks away. And I think, you know, there's a great shot here um, in the 54th second of the minute. So you've got... Uh, let's just go to the left of frame. You've got Drucker, who is... He's sort of holding his brow. Like he's, yep. he's like, I cannot believe we're doing this. You've got, you've well, see, got. I don't think that's exactly the emotion, but I'll let you go through and then oh, I'll give you my. Oh, oh no, like, no, no, jump in, jump in. Okay, what I think is happening here is we saw at the very beginning of the scene where all of them kind of feel like they're the star of their own movie. That yes. you know they could be the one that kind of busts this open. <laughs> yes. Okay, but then uh, Pacino just takes control of the situation. It's like it's all about me, 
and then really makes the entire thing all about him. <laughs> yes. And then as this minute finishes, like everyone just sort of walks away and they're all just deflated. It's like, well, I've got nothing to contribute at this point. Like they just. <laughs> yeah. So, but the, yeah, I, I, think, I think Druck is holding his brow like, oh god damn it! Like he, he can't believe it. You got Casals, who's Wes Studi's character. He's looking at Ted Levine, and Ted Levine's in kind of like stunned disbelief. He's just like <laughs> smiling with his big walrus moustache, like oh, I can't believe it. Um, and I always forget this guy's name. So I'm gonna grab my phone really quickly. How dare I? This is like, this is a travesty. I'm ashamed of myself. Yeah, you know how they say never meet your heroes? Right now, I'm beginning to learn why. <laughs> oh, man, that was good. Uh, but no, it's, this is, this is just outlandish. I'm so. going to vamp for a minute. Just vamp. One of the things that really bothers me, and I only ever see this in American cop films and TV shows, is the cop of whom is wearing the suit, but is underneath this suit, not wearing a shirt, but a poly shirt. Yeah. God, I hate that. Yeah, I don't really know what that me. is. I don't know what that is. And like, if look, you go to the effort of the rest of the suit, just like button, like have a button shirt. No, the other problem that I have with this, and this is mainly from watching Netflix and Queer Eye, is that you can <laughs> get away with wearing a polo shirt with linen, but you really shouldn't tuck it in like that. There's a there's a sort of a, there's a bit of an issue with the tucking in there. Oh, but it's a different time. <laughs> it's a different time. It is the night. It's an innocent error. <laughs> it's an in- it's it was another time. Schwartz, Jerry Trimble. God damn it. Schwartz, I'm so sorry, Jerry Trimble. You're an amazing and integral part. But this is what I love about this. So you've got Drucker, who is just like, Jesus Christ. That's basically what his face is saying. You've got Casals going, how stupid are we? You know, because what you would have noticed in the previous scene is that it was actually Casals um, and... Um, and, uh, and and Bosco, who's uh, Ted Levine's character, you would notice that they were the two guys who were hiding in the container, actually finding this. They were yeah. scoping it out and for for the guys. Um, and then you get Schwartz here, and he's looking looking out, and he's just it's it's almost like he's deeply impressed with Vincent, but at the same time he's kind of like stunned, like Jesus as well. It's such a it's and. I get. I'm, I'm looking at him, and I just see in his face him just thinking, "I should have studied Weisner." <laughs> What what I love about this, this is where this is where I get real. This is my um, cinematography geek is. I love bodies, multiple bodies in spaces and shapes um, in in these kind of sequences, and um, the framing here is just so great against all of the uh, of the cargo containers. But it's kind of this, maybe this movie and Munich. I think you get such great shots of groups the groups of the spies in Munich and you get great shots of both the criminals and um, and the cops in this movie. Um, he, uh, I just love how many great shots you get of them all together in the same frame that draws your eye to all characters. Like this this second where, you know, the 54 second or the 80 second minute, um, you, you are instantly drawn to all of them. You do want to drink them all in and sort of go, what are they all thinking? And, you know, uh, I, I mean, look, Schwartz now, Jerry Trimble, um, Definitely, you know he's he's got a square jaw, great shaped nose, but thinking about Meisner, according to Dan <laughs> Barrett. And now, in the last the the last dying breath of this minute, um, we get. Sorry, can I concede something here? Yes. I have no thoughts at all on the next two seconds of this. <laughs> I got nothing. He's got nothing. Look, these are actually the plans. If we pause it on the uh, the fifty eight second, these are the plans. Um, for the circuitry of the bank. We know the big bank heist is coming up um, that uh, uh, Tom Noonan's character um, gave them earlier in the film. Um, so he's actually in the car with John Voight under uh, under a bridge in LA, sort of in there inspecting this stuff. 
Um, this is another great scene. I wish I could carry straight into this minute. This is such a great minute that's about and to come up. In this scene, we should verify it is John Voight the actor and not John Voight the dentist behind the wheel of this car. <laughs> what? In Seinfeld. Oh, John Voight the dentist. Bless you. Because George Costanza yes. buys John, John Voight's Voight's car. <laughs> buys John Voight's car. The dentist. Yeah. Yeah, it was owned by John Voight. Oh, man, that is so good. Sorry, Dan, too deep bless there. you. No, that was great. Too deep. I love that. Thank you. Okay, can I just ask a broad question about heat as we wind down the pod? Now, in the last couple of weeks, and because we're recording this probably a few weeks ahead of when people hear it, yeah, uh, we've obviously had like the Stoneman Douglas uh, shootings that have taken place in mm-hmm. the school. It's really brought the idea of uh, gun violence to... The, so I got serious at the end of this podcast. That's no, fine. Uh, it should be like the last podcast. I'm just about to the weapon for the whole thing. Uh, but no, we've been thinking about like gun violence a fair bit and yeah. just part of the conversation. And when I was watching Heat, like this has really been resonating with me because mm. I'm watching like the ferocity of the guns and like the iconic sequence in Heat. Yes. Um, as a ardent Heat fan, okay, and like you'll probably talk about this when you get to like those minutes... But, like, do you sort of watch those scenes now and start to think, like, does it sort of um, uh, sort of queer up the scenes for you a little bit where you can't quite focus on it with the same joy that you may have had previously? No, I think one thing I've never had watching those scenes is joy. Yeah. I've had awe. And I think that there's some violence, and, and this is where I think great... So, you know, you watch a James Bond film, there's cartoonish violence, you watch these the, the cavalcade of, you know, Marvel films, and there's blue lights going up in the sky and violence and, you know, bloodless death. I actually think that all of that is deeply, is far more deeply disturbing to me than anything in Heat. What in Heat and what I think in great films that actually utilise violence in, in, in something like Zodiac, you know, with Fincher, is that the violence is truly disturbing. And yeah. what terrifies and frightens me in Heat and sometimes I think is trivialised in other films is the power of an automatic weapon. Now, as an Australian... Well, I mean, that's kind of what really got me thinking about it because you're feeling like the ferocity of each of those weapons. Yes. And in this film, you actually feel that. Yes. Where the only time I've ever really felt it to the same way I do with the visceral sensation of watching it in this movie is like when I've seen a gun fired in real life. Yes. Which I've only ever seen happen once. I mean, in Australia, you'll see police walking around with guns every so often. And like, it always just makes me feel a bit uneasy. Yes. But I've only ever seen a gun fired once and it was at a shooting range. Yes. And like, when I realized like the sound and the ferocity of the weapon, like, I really, like, you know, the hairs, they stand up. And and that's what this does to me every time. And that's what it does to me every time. So when I, when I look at this, I, it, it, it just reinforces how scary an automatic weapon could be. And so like, when you, when we, in, in Australia where you can't walk into a Kmart and buy automatic weapons when you hear that in heat and you and you watch all these trained law enforcement officials who are actually armed with their police cars and there are three people who know how to use automatic weapons they are they are almost grated into nothing they run what do they do they run away so they don't yeah. die because they know that they are no match for automatic weapons in a in a city and in a country where they are, you know, police are equipped with automatic weapons and high-powered rifles, etc. So, yeah, no, for me, it doesn't, um, it doesn't, it doesn't make it any, it doesn't make it resonate any any less. In fact, it just reinforces what I've always thought is that that's, you know, it, it's probably the worst nightmare for for a sleeping partner who's putting your baby to sleep is watching <laughs> that high scene late at night for heat is because. The real life sounds of those rounds, those blanks that they were firing on that, that they sound different 
they sound like you're in a war zone and it's not been tweaked. It's because they're actually, they're not, they don't care about the EQ. They're making you feel what it sounds like to be in a gunfight in a city street. And I, yeah, it's, it's, it's all the more terrifying. It's all the, and, 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 and it's, it's the real dark, dark, dark side of that Neil McCauley character, which is why he's so, um, what's such an incredible performance from all those guys because they're so engaging, but they are willing, they are sociopaths and they're bordering on psychopaths. Um, they are willing to use automatic weapons and it's just scary. It's, uh, there's nothing like watching it, ever thinking about that. Yeah, now another broad question, and this is more just a hypothetical. Yes. If you're in a car with John Voight... Okay. Yeah, the, you, not the dentist. And you want to prove to people that you're in a car with John Voight. Do you go looking around the car for a pencil that he might have been chewing on? <laughs> no. What I do is I'm I'm looking, I'm 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 looking for any evidence of anaconda, like anything, <laughs> just like a a J Lo phone number, a, a Polaroid, um, and and definitely one of the long hairs from this delicious mullet that he's worn in uh, 1995's heat. I'm incredibly angry that you got the Anaconda reference before I did. <laughs> well, guys and gals, folks, thank you so much for listening to another episode of One Heat Minute. Dan, thank you so much for coming back. Oh, thanks for letting me into the One Heat Minute studios. Yes. Well, look, yeah, again, the studio's all set up. Um, guys, you can find Dan at alwaysbewatching.com. There is a great newsletter. They come out three times a week, but my favorite one is Friday. Dan, tell us about all of them. Uh, well, like two times a week, you just get a whole bunch of stories about TV, screen culture. But then the final one is on Fridays and it lets you prepare for the weekend of TV viewing. Gives you links to all the brand new TV shows that have debuted that week. Awesome. Rate, review, subscribe. Batman Land, which I've been on twice. I'm a lucky man to be on twice. We'll get you on a third time. <gasps> so it's winding down soon. So. Oh, winding. Yes. Look, yeah. and, and like, see, this is and what Dan... Sorry, Batman Land, we should say, uh, looking back at the 1966 Batman TV show. Yes, and The Bright Knight, getting yeah. himself up in the bright lights of the SBS studios. Just the other day, we recorded the final episode from 1966, and now we're going to the dark 1967 year. <laughs> the dark age. <laughs> oh, dear God. Where the budgets went south. <laughs> Seriously, um, if you have listened to Dan and I talking about Milan, one of the things that we both were just we both continue to marvel at, and the show marvels at, is like they spent the budget of many films for each episode of that show for the longest time in that first series, and then in the second and third, it just takes a swan dive. Absolutely, I mean the budget they spend on the signs that sit on top of all the equipment <laughs> in the back cave alone is more than most episodes in that third season. It's absolutely outrageous, but. Um, yes, I would love to come back on. You've got my promise. I would, I uh, would adore it. I adore the show, and I adore Adam West Batman, um, the the Bright Knight. Um, but you also know what it's like to have a show that you conceive of and go, "This is a great podcast. I'm having a lot of fun." But it can wind down. I don't. I actually don't. I'm, I'm going to have to talk with Dan. I'm going to have to have many conversations and pep talks because I don't know what I'm going to do getting to 170 odd minutes of heat. I'll get you through it. But here's the thing. I'm inspired by you doing this one-minute heat thing. I'm inspired to look at one of the things I love in the world, which is the TV show News Radio. And I'm thinking about the News Radio Minute. Wow. Exploring every episode of News Radio minute by minute. Wow. That would be the longest podcast (laughs) ever. You'd never finish. No. (laughs) You'd have to do five to six episodes a week to even get close. The thing is, I think that a podcast about The Simpsons, doing it minute by minute, would reveal, like, 
just a huge amount of like jokes. It is a rapid fire show. Yes, but there's also would you just do season five? Well, the, I mean, this is it. Oh, season seven, I think. Season maybe. five to seven is good. Really yeah. good stuff. But like Brad Bird, Conan O'Brien. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's like season twenty nine now. Yeah. Simpsons. So you just can't do but that. But news radio. That is a show that was you know and and, and great to sort of tack onto there. But like uh, Dave Foley. Oh my god. Like yeah. everyone talks about Phil Hartman, and Phil Hartman is. A, like you put Phil Hartman in anything, you've got the engine for the entire show. Just put other funny people around him; things are going to be funny. But Dave Foley, you know, by all accounts, you know, I'm a big Joe Rogan fan, and so Joe Rogan talks about you know Dave Foley being just basically an uncredited writer on that show for a stack of it. Apart from having a great crew and great writers and great producers, you get someone like Dave Foley who'd done improv for years, and he's just like bang, 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 cool, yeah, we're going to do this. Moratini, Joe Rogan, Stephen Root. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a that's a one you'd love to dive into. Yeah, I mean, the problem doing News Radio Minute is there's an audience of maybe three people, <laughs> and at least two of those people are in this room right oh, now. Oh, look, I'd, I'd be all in. I'd be all in. It's a great <laughs> show. It's a great show. There's more. There's more stuff out there. But look, thank you so much for being a part of One Eight Minute again. I'm sure you'll be back on in another hundred in 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 the in the uh, oh wow, in this minute. Okay, we'll try to get me back before the end of this hour. Yeah, look, there's about, an, there's, I was going to say, there's about 90 more minutes to go, so I think we can get you in. I think we can fit you in. Guys, thank you so much for listening to One Hit Minute. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review. Um, the best place to find me is at Blakey's Batman um, uh, on the Twitters, and all my stuff is there. But oneheatminute.com, mail at One Hit Minute. If you've got any tidbits, if you want to reach out, um, we've got our Facebook page. You can hit us up in messages there, but um, you can DM me anytime. But thank you so much for listening. Dan, thank you so much for being a part of the show once again. That's fantastic. And guys, Thank you uh, to Paul Davies for our music, for Garth Franklin for our web design, and we'll catch you guys again soon. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.